If we were to change how school food is prepared and revalue these jobs, the culinary side of things, but also all of the emotional work kitchen and cafeteria workers are putting into caring for kids, that could be a really great way to create middle-class jobs in rural, suburban, and urban communities. I'm Christina Bronsing Lasalle, and this is Real Food Reads, the podcast from Real Food Media, where we talk to authors of some of the most interesting books today on the intersection of food, politics, and culture. I'm really thrilled about this month's featured book, which dives into questions that we at Real Food Media think about often in our work. How can we reimagine the role of public institutions in ensuring the public good? How they can be in service to a vision of a food system and beyond that prioritizes not only healthy food produced locally and sustainably, but ensures that those 21.5 million food chain workers who are a part of producing, transporting, and serving that food are front and center and the incredible potential to shift billions of public dollars towards this vision. So my guest today has been thinking about these questions for many years. Jennifer Gaddis is Assistant Professor of Civil Society and Community Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She holds a PhD in social ecology from Yale University, and she brings a feminist perspective to food politics through her research on the social, political, and economic organization of public school lunch programs. Her book, The Labor of Lunch, Why We Need Real Food and Real Jobs in American Public Schools, is a work of activist scholarship that centers the perspectives of school lunch activists and frontline cafeteria workers who are fighting for food justice in communities across the United States. Her writing has appeared in numerous peer-reviewed journals and popular publications, including The Guardian, Washington Post, Teen Vogue, and New York Times. Hi, Jennifer. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Christina. I'm going to jump right in um, with the title of your book, because I love the subheader here around we need real food and real jobs in American public schools. And I think that a lot of people have an idea of what real food means. Real jobs, though, that's a little fuzzier. What does it mean? One thing that I would think about as like a very simple thing that people may have heard is this tagline that one job should be enough. So this idea that a person who's working a job, whether it be in a school kitchen or cafeteria or you know any other kind of food service setting, um, would actually only have to have that one job in order to be able to care for themselves and their families on uh, the wages that they're bringing home. And I think, you know, it's also really important for us to be thinking about workers having a say in how their workplaces run. So whether that be through a union or like a worker-owned cooperative, I think that there are a lot of different mechanisms um, that exist that can bring that kind of democratic ethos to the workplace. But to me, it's very important for workers to not only have a living wage um, with health and retirement benefits, um, but also some way for them to um, really be expressing their own individual and collective agency in terms of what the job conditions are like. And I think particularly in the case of school food service, for the workers to be able to say, you know, we are interacting with kids on a daily basis. We know them, we know their families, we know their communities, we know what they need, and we should have a greater role in really shaping what school food policy looks like, both at the national and the local level, because we're the ones on the front lines every day who are actually seeing, you know, what kids' taste preferences are like, or, you know, how they react to, um, for instance, like visits from farmers who are talking about like farm to school programs and things of that nature. And I should mention that that language of Real Food, Real Jobs really comes from a partnership that I had with the Labor Union Unite here. They had, to date, um, three Real Food, Real Jobs campaigns that they ran, and one of them was in New Haven Public Schools, where I started um, doing this research. 
one thing that a lot of people don't necessarily realize about school kitchens and cafeterias is that um, there are a lot of people who are working very short hour positions. So anywhere between kind of a three to four hour shift in the middle of the day is not really uncommon. So I think that it is very challenging for people to cobble together like multiple jobs, particularly when the job is in the middle of the day and still meet, you know, their own needs as individuals and especially as family and community members. So for me, one of the things that's really important is for us to be focusing on cooking from scratch, because that's one of the big things that I found can really alter the kind of work hours and wages and career mobility that kitchen and cafeteria workers have access to. In the book, you wrote about how an average K-12 cafeteria employee works 25 hours a week, and that's not even for the full year. And this was in 2008. What they were taking home was less than $10,000. It was like $9,300 as the annual medium income. Those are extremely low wages. So even if you're working two jobs like that, or in some cases, three jobs like that, you're coming nowhere near, and that's not even including any benefits. We'll put a link to this really fantastic playlist that Jennifer put together on YouTube that breaks down some of these issues really concretely. Uh, there's a cook coordinator at Des Moines Public Schools there, Eddie, Eddie Watson, and he mm-hmm. was saying that he works five and a half hours at schools and then another four hours in the evenings, right? So this is just one example of what you're painting here and how hard it really is to find positions that are full-time and offer benefits in a lot of these school cafeterias. How do you think that it came to be that way? Yeah, a big component of it is just that um, these are programs that don't have a lot of money to work with. So labor costs are one of the big areas where oftentimes they try to really you know, rein in costs. So what you'll often find is, depending upon the district, they might have a different threshold for how many hours the person has to work in order to qualify for benefits. So in some districts that I visited that have um, stronger unions, it might be four hours. And in other districts, it was more like six hours or sometimes seven hours. But regardless of, you know, whatever the threshold is, you would typically find a lot of people who were just shy of um, whatever it would be that would make them qualify for benefits. So Mm -hmm. it might be that in Eddie's case, for instance, um, he's working five and a half hours and he would need six hours in order to qualify for benefits. In terms of the quality of the jobs, like you're saying, a lot of these cafeteria workers actually are sort of forced because of those low wages to then participate in at least one public assistance program that's designed to address either food insecurity or child and family poverty. Right. And I think, um, you know, those numbers from 2008 that you mentioned, um, I wish I had more up-to-date numbers, but that was the last time there was a national study done. But I have seen some stuff from the Food Chain Workers Alliance that shows that since the recession, the wages for workers across the food chain have been a lot slower to rise than in other sectors of the economy. So I think that these numbers are probably a little lower than what they would be today. But I think that the kind of general idea that these are actually like pretty low wage jobs holds true. You know, one of the reasons why I decided to have a pretty hefty historical component to my book is because I really wanted to be able to explain, you know, why are these wages so low and why do we have so many part-time jobs and do we have so many school kitchens around the country that aren't even being used to cook food. They're just being used to reheat food. For me, one of the things that really came out of um, really going far back in time, so to the 1890s when nonprofit school lunch programs first started, was this realization that these programs first started as largely a volunteer 
effort and something that, you know, oftentimes parents or, you know, women who are involved in charitable organizations would volunteer their own um, time and their own labor to, and they might hire some other people. But usually it was, you know, working class women who might consider this to be a better job than working in a factory, but they don't, you know, cost a ton. And I think they always faced a lot of pressure to really keep um, their meals as sort of cheap as possible, Mm -hmm. um, because they were oftentimes relying on private charitable donations to cover the cost of free meals for poor kids. And they wanted to make sure that, you know, whatever cost they were charging to children would be as low as possible so that as many people um, would be able to afford these meals as possible. So I think from the very beginning, because this kind of started as this more volunteer community-based effort, and it didn't have like the public support through like a tax base, um, the same way that other aspects of public schooling did, a lot of these women just to kind of get their foot in the door and to get permission, particularly from like conservative male school boards to set up their nonprofit school lunch programs, they had to promise to be financially self-sustaining. And one of the ways that they really worked to reduce you know, their need for capital was in keeping labor very cheap. And I think that there was this expectation socially that well, if kids aren't eating at school, then, you know, it's something that would be the private responsibility of parents. So, you know, if we're thinking about this kind of from the perspective of capitalism, how dependent capitalist economies are on unpaid and very low paid, you know, women's work. So I, in a book, I call it care work or reproductive labor. I think it's not altogether surprising that from the very beginning of school lunch programs, we see a lot of this labor, what's expected essentially to be either, um, if not free, like very, very cheap. Over time, I think that there's actually been a lot of self-sacrifice from workers in school kitchens and cafeterias who, because they really care for the kids that they're feeding and believe in the mission, um, have been, you know, doing what they can to stay in the job as long as possible and to really fight for the kids and for the institution. But I think that we should really see their low wages as a subsidy to the true cost of this national program. So I think that it's not fair of us to rely on workers' altruism or care for the kids as a reason why they should not actually be paid a living wage. The situation of what any worker really needs to bring home today is quite different from what it was in the past. So um, as an example, I did a survey with Unite here of their workforce. This was about 200 people. And we found that about two thirds of the workers were actually primary providers for their families. So it's definitely not a job that should be viewed as like something that's bringing supplemental income into the home. For a lot of people, it's actually their primary source of income. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's one of the things that's really important to recognize today is that if we were to change how school food is prepared and really revalue these jobs, not just the kind of culinary side of things, but also all of the emotional work that kitchen and cafeteria workers are putting into caring for kids, um, that could be a really great way to create a lot of like middle-class jobs in rural, suburban, and urban communities. These are jobs that primarily are held by women. About 93% of the workforce is women. And those men who are in the program typically are in more like managerial positions as directors of larger kind of city school food programs or sometimes cooks in high schools, but they're generally in the kind of more full-time higher paid positions. So I really think about this as like 
a way for us to think about advancing like a feminist form of food politics as well by recognizing that food is about more than just nurturing kids through consuming food, but also it's about nurturing them from this kind of emotional standpoint as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that those are skills that have been very highly gendered over time. And because of that, they aren't really economically valued or rewarded, but I think that they should be. (laughs) And I think that it's actually very important that workers can afford to stay in these jobs and make long-term connections uh, with kids. Um, And I think that that's one of the pieces that tends to not get talked a whole lot about that I really tried to pull out in the book is some of these other forms of value that kitchen and cafeteria workers can provide when they're empowered to do so. One of the stories that you brought up in the book was this story at the end of the 60s, 1970, and you talked about how these uh, mothers in the South Bronx, right, they had this shared project of claiming their kids' right to a free school lunch and how in effect, by doing that, it mobilized and empowered, politically empowered hundreds of people who wouldn't have typically been, usually because of poverty or language barriers or often relative newcomer status to the United States. So they weren't really accustomed to making demands on institutions of power in the city, for example. Mm-hmm. And they didn't just secure their own kids' right to lunch, but that they became the administrators of New York City's free federally funded summer meal program in the wake of that organizing. And it's so, I mean, it's when folks who know what needs to be done, when we can collectively aim for that vision together and organize for it, it's powerful, right? There are other examples that you share in the book, but I'm just curious, what are the most compelling stories that you came across that show us really, truly where an economy of care is centered? What happens? What happens to the sort of social fabric there in our relationships? Yeah, I think that that's a really important question. One thing that I would say is that I think that schools represent a really important arena for doing what's called structure-based organizing. So thinking about how you have a lot of people working in school kitchens and cafeterias who actually have a lot of kind of organic connections in the community. So if you can get workers to like really believe that transformation is possible, they can be very, very effective community organizers and generating the kind of local level support that you need in order to actually transition a school food program from more of this heat and serve model, relatively status quo, to um, the kind of program that I think really maximizes public value by not only improving the healthfulness of the food, but also redirecting public dollars into local food economies. For me, one of the important things is for school districts to focus on worker-centered approaches to school food reform. And I'll backtrack for a second and say that Um, I've heard so many conversations, even within circles of people who care a lot about farm-to-school programs and other real food initiatives, who will sometimes say, you know, we have to choose between better quality ingredients, like spending our dollars there, or more labor benefits for our workers. And Mm -hmm. so sometimes, um, I think because of the pretty tight reimbursement dollars from the federal government and the real lack of middle class and upper middle class buy-in to this program, even some of the more progressively minded school food service directors that I spoke with 
they really felt in a lot of ways like they were kind of trapped, like they wanted to do better by their workers and they actually like could see like the value in doing that. But they also felt like, well, you know, we really have to try to change the food and we have to work on getting our participation numbers up. So any kind of labor justice issues have to be secondary. So I think that that was kind of a, a part of the conversation is that sometimes workers are treated and viewed as this cost to be minimized. And I've seen both school districts take leadership and kind of rejecting that idea and also ways in which I've seen workers really push against that idea. So as an example, in Minneapolis public schools um, for a number of years, really since the 1970s, the district had prepared little pre-packed meals. They look basically like little TV dinners um, in a central kitchen facility. And then those meals would have been shipped out to the individual schools to be reheated by a very, very part-time worker. And they got a new food service director, um, Bertrand Weber. And he was somebody who was kind of well-known within this space as somebody who was a real champion of scratch cooking and farm to school. Now Minneapolis is really in this process of transitioning all of their schools to on-site cooking. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a really important thing because as I was mentioning earlier, when you transition to on-site cooking, that totally changes what the jobs look like. So Minneapolis started to have a whole new sort of classification of positions. So prep cooks and cooks, basically these positions that had much longer hours and higher wages and mobility pathways for people to move up within the system. Mm -hmm. So I think of their approach as being a really great model because as they have built this ability to cook from scratch, um, they have been able to really think much more critically about values-based purchasing. So like what sort of farms do they want to be sourcing from with their farm to school program? And they've been able to really engage workers in this process of learning new recipes and getting kids excited about food. Um, the other example that I would point to is in New Haven Public Schools, they have a comparatively strong labor union there that had won a number of battles over the years. So their union was very active in mobilizing the community to actually kick out Aramark, which is like a private for-profit management company that the district had contracted out its food service program to. Mm -hmm. So they not only succeeded in saying, you know, we don't see a place for a for-profit um, entity in this not-for-profit program, but they were also able to you know, really take their vision for what they wanted to see happen, which was essentially the same thing as Minneapolis, this return to scratch cooking. But in New Haven, they actually had a lot more functional kitchens to work with. They just weren't using them for anything other than reheating food. So they um, really tried to get the word out to the community and they did a lot to get petitions signed. They went on radio um, and they did a lot of just door knocking to build support for their new vision. Yeah, we've come to know Bertrand Weber also in Minneapolis Public Schools and seen really this return to scratch cooking and really pushing for the infrastructure that would make that possible. And one of the things that I think the Good Food Purchasing Program does really well that you're touching on here is often uh, food quality and job quality are pitted against each other in the school system, right? And there are a lot of programs, you know, through Farm to School, and efforts to bring more sustainable and more local, healthier food into schools. But those conversations too often are divorced from this idea of, well, who's behind 
that food, whether it's the folks in the kitchens who are cooking it, but also food chain workers all along, all along the food chain, right, who are growing it and, and packing it and transporting it. I think that we limit ourselves right out the gate by saying, you know, that it has to be one or the other. And I think that this is just an effect of the way that our imaginations are really limited under capitalism in this trap of cheapness that you talk about in your book that's not um, just a synonym for low cost, but it's a guiding political and economic philosophy business strategy um, and an expectation that we assume that food and labor ought to be cheap. I'm so glad you brought up the Good Food Purchasing Program because one of the things that really excites me about it is exactly what you were mentioning, that there's this more integrated and holistic program that takes labor seriously. I believe um, in October, Bernie Sanders and Alan Omar introduced the Universal School Meals Program Act. And what really excited me about it was that it not only is saying school meals should be free for everyone so that we don't have issues like unpaid school meal debt that lead to lunch shaming, but also Mm -hmm. this piece of legislation recognizes that this entire system just needs more money in order to really achieve its full potential. So what this bill would do um, is it would not only kind of address these food justice issues in terms of how kids are experiencing um, or you know not experiencing dignity in the cafeteria, but it also would increase the reimbursement rate for all the meals served and provide an additional 30 cents per meal served to any school district that's sourcing at least 30% of their food from local sources. So what really excited me about this particular piece of legislation is that it's recognizing like the important role that school food programs could play in generating like real sort of change within our local food economies, but it's recognizing that we need to actually make a financial investment in mm-hmm. order to transition models. It's really hard for them to make that financial commitment to sourcing food very differently when the amount of money that they have coming into the system is basically saying, you know, you have to, all things considered, get food from like the cheapest possible source. Right. And in the past, when we've looked toward universal free school lunches, that's what pushed us toward more privatization, right, of the National School Lunch Program. What is to be done about the privatization and some of the really sticky contractual relationships that we're dealing with now with food service management companies, Aramark, who you mentioned already, but also Sodexo and Compass Group, and the role that they play? Yeah, that's a great question. And in my experience, really, school districts tend to contract out their meal service programs when they're feeling like the finances aren't working out. So it's usually like this last-ditch effort where it's like we feel like we can't manage things on our own in a way that fiscally sustainable, um, like we're you know in the red, so we need to bring in experts to kind of help solve the situation. Certainly people who I've interviewed who work for these companies will say, you know, we provide a lot of value because we can do bulk purchasing and we can harness a lot of our expertise across school districts and kind of share more in terms of best practices for different kinds of operations. But I think the part of me that, you know, listens to workers more um, would say, well, a certain amount of that may be true. But if we look at the data, if we compare self-operated versus outsourced school lunch programs, one of those typically has lower wages and benefit packages than the other. And it's the privatized ones. And, you know, it's not rocket science. You have to make profit somewhere if you're a for-profit company working in a non 
not-for-profit context, and the only real places that they can eke out a profit are surrounding food and labor, but there's only so much that they can do with reducing food costs because the meal requirements for the school lunch and breakfast programs are like pretty tightly regulated by the federal government. I think that a big place where they really do try to reduce costs in order to maximize profits is in the cost of on-site labor. I personally um, am not a big fan of outsourcing school lunch programs. I think it's better to have community control. But I think that the role that privatized management companies play is actually a little different from some of the private companies that actually, I think, play a pretty significant role in just shaping what the meal requirements look like through their lobbying efforts. By that, I'm really referring to like the frozen food industry and kind of more specifically to companies that, you know, sell lots of frozen potatoes and chicken nuggets and (laughs) like pizza uh, to schools. Those are kind of like the three big ones that I think actually have quite a bit of lobbying power. So I think Mm -hmm. that, you know, a lot of food activists today like you know have heard about the National Restaurant Association and its influence on food policy and food economies in the country and I think that it's not something that people have necessarily made the link with um, in terms of school lunch. In in school cafeterias yeah the other NRA. (laughs) One of the things that I think that you do really well is to be real about the constraints in the immediate, but also to help us to think bigger about, you know, what we really need is a, a deeper conversation. You know, one of the things we say at Real Food Media is what what's the prize? How do we get there? What does that look like? Yeah, that's a really great question. And I think that one of the things in my mind starts with people seeing this as a program that's for them. And I think historically, there's been this real trend really since the early 1970s of a big swath of the country. So a lot of middle class and upper middle class families feeling like, you know, this program isn't really for them and they don't really think too much about it. So I think that one step is for all those families who like really don't see like how this relates to their own lives to start getting them to imagine what's possible. So I think that that to me is where um, storytelling plays a really important role of helping people see, for instance, like what school food programs look like in some of the best places in the U.S. or in other countries, for instance, and having that be part of like our imagination of what's possible if we fight for it. In particular, like feminists of my generation across genders, I would really like to see this as an opportunity for really advancing a feminist food politics that recognizes and values the kind of labor that people are doing to feed kids and also recognizes that, you know, women who have kids um, at home are often really strapped in terms of leisure time. So if we can start to figure out more ways to cooperate together and to collectivize care work in ways that, you know, really can create, I think, a beautiful kind of community solution for people, that's something that I think a lot of people could buy into, but it's not really framed in that kind of way um, Mm -hmm. for the most part. So I think the other piece of that is um, really helping people recognize the infrastructure of school kitchens and cafeterias as community assets. So a lot of times kitchens and cafeterias might actually be, particularly in rural areas, you know, a real like heart of the community and probably the largest quote unquote restaurant in the area. Um, But they don't really use a lot of their equipment to full capacity in like the evenings or weekends or in the summertime. So one of the things that I think is an interesting kind of creative way to go is to start really recognizing these 
community-owned resources as, you know, not just something that is for feeding kids, but for feeding, you know, lots of different members of communities. So I think that recognizing more our, like, interconnectedness and how we can use these kinds of assets to um, really build up more of the infrastructure for local food is something that I would love to see in the future. And I think that Mm, when we start to kind of work together in these ways, you know, you ask this question of what is the prize? And I think the big thing that got me initially into this research on school lunch programs is just how significant of a leverage point for really transitioning our food system as a whole to one that, you know, is fair for workers, like vibrant and healthy for communities and actually not going to destroy our environment um, is really just this idea that the school lunch program is already something that exists in this distributed way, we already actually have like a public school lunch program happening. So you don't have to think about totally starting something from scratch. Like we've Mm -hmm. already got this basic infrastructure. It's just this question of like, what are we going to use it to do? Mm -hmm. And I think that the answer is that we could really use it to like totally transform what our food systems look like, but we have to sort of recognize and see the value and make the investment. Yeah. And it's the kind of place where a lot of our movements Uh, are able to address these current struggles, both for real food and real jobs in in the same space together. And I even think of, you know, worker co-ops here in Chicago and some of the barriers they have to accessing, you know, a central kitchen or community kitchen. It's right in front of us, right? It's almost so obvious um, how these struggles for real food and real jobs that there's inherent intersectionality right there and that these movements for anti-hunger, for racial justice, economic justice, and the real jobs movement, they meet there and can meet there in schools. Absolutely. And I think that I'm glad that you mentioned like both racial and economic justice, because I think that it's a really important thing to sort of recognize that, yes, a lot of white children are served by this program, but it's also a very heavily like racialized program in a lot of ways. And I think that If we look at the history, one of the things that I try to show in chapter two of the book is that really it was when black children in particular first started to really access their right Mm -hmm. to um, free and reduced price lunches that this became a program that was really sort of recast as welfare instead of a program that would be serving all kids equally and creating this like very inclusive environment. So I think that in the 1970s, school lunch like started to be stigmatized as welfare food, and that is something that really exacerbated any kind of racial segregation that you know we could see then and still see today. You know, one way for us to really be thinking about what racial justice looks like in the food system is to recognize that school food programs are a place where kids can get up to 50% of their like daily calories. And the people who are disproportionately participating in this program are kids from communities of color. So, you know, people talk about like this concept of food apartheid. And I think it's something that's relevant to think about in relation to what our school meals landscape looks like today. listening to the Real Food Reads podcast. I'm Christina Bronsing-Lasalde, and you can catch this and other episodes of Real Food Reads anywhere you get your podcasts. Make sure to subscribe, join the book club, and find out about future book selections, author interviews, and more at realfoodmedia.org.